Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guys. My name is Scott Powell, and I am flying solo this week. Father Peter is out of town, but I didn't want to give you guys another rerun, so you are stuck with me, unfortunately. Um, but that's all right because we're gonna we're gonna have some fun today. We uh, are gonna be looking at the readings from the fifteenth Sunday of Ordinary Time here for the Mass. Um, Want to give a quick shout out, by the way, I'm spending a lot of my summer, most of it, um, up at Camp Voitiwa, the outdoor program that uh, my wife and I founded a number of years ago, and I want to give a particular shout out on this Thursday afternoon to our awesome backpacking program. Um, Camp Voitiwa has a lot of different programs that it runs in the mountains, in the wilderness, and one of my, my favorite aspects of our job is the backpacking programs that we run. So um, our backpacking staff, who's awesome, asked for a little shout-out today. And uh, they have been spending um, an amazing summer just pouring themselves out to young people from around the country and our on-site staff as well. Um, so I just want to give a huge shout-out to all of the college students, the seminarians that we have working for us this summer who are are just pouring themselves out. So uh, thanks to all of you, and if you could, all of you listeners, please keep them in your prayers this summer as they as they serve the Lord. Um, but that being said, uh, without further ado, let's jump into the readings for this week. So our first reading for the 15th Sunday of Ordinary Time is coming from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 10 through 14. And then our responsorial psalm is coming from Psalm 69, verse 14, then 17, and then 30 through 31, 33 through 34, 36, and 37. Our second reading is coming from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. And last but not least, one of uh, the most familiar stories of the Gospels. Our Gospel is coming from Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, which is the story of the uh, Good Samaritan. Um, which is, uh, I, I think, actually one of the most important stories, or parables, rather, that Jesus tells in the entire gospel. So we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, one of the things that I'm actually seeing, and it's a little bit subtle, th- these are all really good readings, but uh, I've been struggling a little bit to try to find the, uh, the thread that holds them all together. And one of the things that I'm seeing um, is a certain sacramentality to all the readings. And so we'll, we'll, uh, let's see if we can pull some stuff out of that. So starting with Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, um, we're, we're coming from the end of the book of Deuteronomy, which is interesting. We're just a couple chapters from the end of the book. And this is a very interesting section of Deuteronomy where essentially the narrative is all kind of beginning to wind up, right? So we've received the law. So it's, Deuteronomy really comes after, during the time of the Exodus period, right? So if you remember, the people of Israel have been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds and hundreds of years, and then they finally come out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, uh, and and they find themselves in this wilderness area where they're kind of put to the test in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, they fail that test. So remember when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the law from God, um, the people fall into fear and all sorts of uh, all sorts of stuff. And they end up worshiping one of the gods of Egypt from their former home, this golden calf, and um, chaos ensues, right? They fall into this, this pretty profound act of idolatry. Moses comes down, he finds out what they've done, and everything kind of changes. This was meant to be this moment in Israel's history where they were sort of, they had been wooed by God. He'd won their hearts back. And now the idea was that they were kind of being wed to God. So traditionally, the Hebrews all saw the Ten Commandments and the law as sort of wedding vows. And so as the wedding vows are taking place, 
you know, the bride is, is, is having an affair essentially with this foreign God, with this God who is not God. Um, so all these things happen. And because of that pretty profound sin, um, there's a whole new set of laws that are sort of heaped on top of Israel because they clearly have not learned who God is and really they haven't learned who they are. There's a new priesthood that is instituted, the Levites. Um, and so all of these things, and so in a lot of ways, Deuteronomy is the, the, the codification of all of those laws. Deuteronomy is often seen as the national constitution of Israel. So it has all the laws and the norms and the rules, but so much of it has to do with how to deal with Israel now that we have fallen to this profound sin of worshiping a golden calf and and uh, abandoning God when he was trying to wed himself to us. And so there's all these laws and there's rules, but, it, but it's not all darkness. I mean, it is seen as the constitution. So what it is presented as is norms of how to live. They're still in the wilderness, right? They haven't crossed over into the promised land that God is going to build them up in yet. They've wandered for 40 years, and now at the very end of the book, Moses knows he's about to die, and he's about to pass the baton. He's going to pass the baton to Joshua, which is one of his military chiefs. Um, But before he does, he kind of gives one of his last really impassioned speeches, trying desperately to, to win the hearts of a new generation. So the generation who came out of the Exodus is dying, and now there's a new generation who he's trying to encourage basically to not be like your parents. God is giving you an opportunity and you have a choice to make as you stand on the brink of this new people that God is about to build you into. So um, there's some some themes in this section of the book. One is worship, right? So, so how ought we worship? Another theme is the idea of God's word. What does it say to us? What is our response to it? And then there is song. There is worship sort of put into practice and Moses will sing um, sort of in the end of the book. Um, again, this is where Moses is his most passionate in the book. And this is kind of where this transfer of power is going to happen. And so the the Hebrew people are now going to have to imagine a world without Moses as they begin to enter into the promised land, right? Um, so there's a lot about worship. There's a lot about liturgy. There's a lot about this new covenant that God is enacting with this new generation. Um, and uh, what to look for, I think, in this section of Deuteronomy is these three movements of the whole book. This is the moment that the book of Deuteronomy looks back to the past. It catches us up to where we are at this moment in the present, and it looks forward to the future. Past, present, and future are all sort of caught up in this section of the book. Um, And so this passage that we actually get this week is all about this big choice, this great choice that is before them. So they are in this place called Shechem, which is known as the Valley of Decision. And they're standing between, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but they're standing between these two mountains, the, the mount called Ebal and a mount called Gerasim. And the idea is there were, there were representatives from each of the tribes that were to climb these mountains and basically cry out to each other, what are the curses to befall the people if they're unfaithful to all of these laws and these things God has asked? And what are going to be all the blessings if they are faithful? And so now after having done that, the reading picks up with sort of Moses saying, okay, now it's time to make a choice. Now it's time to choose who you're going to be. And so Moses says, this is Deuteronomy 30 verse 10, Moses said to the people, if only you would heed the voice of the Lord your God. And he doesn't say it, but it's implied, unlike your parents did. Your parents didn't listen. Your parents didn't heed. They didn't shamar is the word in Hebrew. But if only you do and you keep his commandments, his statutes, all the stuff that's written in this book of the law that we're reading now. When you return to the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul. And actually, you know, I, I, I didn't know if I was going to talk about this today, but I was going back through this section of Deuteronomy, and there's a very interesting section. And one of the things that uh, 
Deuteronomy chapter 30 says right before the section that we actually get, basically it's, it's Moses saying, you're going to blow it. I, I've laid out for you. We've laid out all of these blessings and curses if you're faithful and if you're unfaithful. And we sort of know that eventually you're going to be unfaithful and you're going to blow it and God's going to punish you. And there's going to be dispersion among the nations. And I'm actually reading from verse two. It says, but after that, after you, you blow it, I mean, we're going to fall. We're going to have to get back up. But when you and your children return to the Lord and God, your God and obey him with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, according to everything I commanded you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. He'll have compassion on you. He'll gather you again, even from the nations into which he scattered you. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. It's funny as they're kind of going for, back and forth between this decision between life and death and blessing and curse. Are you going to follow God or not? Moses makes it very clear, I, I sort of already know what your decision is going to be, and we know the way that the story of Israel has played out, and we can see how it's going to happen again. And God knows that too, and he knows you're going to blow it, and he knows you're going to fall on your face, and he's not that concerned about that. I mean, that is a concern. Obviously, God doesn't want us to fall, but he's more concerned about what you do when you get back up. So once you've fallen, what are you going to do? And if only you would heed the voice of the Lord, he said, listen and get back up and then follow. Start again, get back up. Then the Lord's going to bless you and he's going to restore you. And he goes on to say, for this command that I enjoin on you today, which is get back up and listen. Shamar, hear the Lord. This command, all of these commandments in this book, they're not too mysterious and remote for you. It's not up in the sky that you should say, who will go up to the sky and get it for us and tell it to us that we may carry it out. It's not across the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea to get it for us and tell us that we may carry it out. No, it's something very near to you. It's already in your mouths and in your hearts. You have only to carry it out. And I was reflecting on that, and there's, there's a lot of different levels that you can kind of hear that on. Basically, I'm in mean, the simplest level. Moses is saying all of these laws, all of these uh, norms of life, they're not abstractions. They're not these far distant, dusty, dreary law code. They're not mysterious or abstract or remote. They're, they're stuff that actually is already built into you. The word of the Lord is within you. It's not up in the sky that you have to go and get it. It's not across the sea that you have to go and find it, but it's actually something near, already in your mouths and your hearts. And I was thinking about that language and I was thinking about the fact that at this point in the story, I mean, the people who are listening to Moses all know the story of their parents' generation not too long ago who literally crossed a sea to get to this new promised land, or at least to get to the verge of this new promised land. All of these things have, have sort of already happened, but Moses says, it is very near to you. Well, what's near to you? Well, the words that he has just declared. Well, what words are they? Well, they are the scriptures. They are the laws of Deuteronomy. They are the word of the Lord. So the word of the Lord is already in your mouth and in your heart. And what's fascinating about that to me, and I hope this doesn't get too abstract, but again, Moses makes clear he knows that we're going to blow it in a lot of ways. He knows that Israel will turn away from God, even though we know who he is. But when we get back up, we have to recognize that the word of the Lord has, already, already, has always already been there in our mouths and in our hearts. And if the word of the Lord is something that is in our hearts, there is a subtle foreshadowing of something that is to come because the word of God at this point in salvation history is being made written, but later the word of God will be made flesh. And so if the word of God made written is in our hearts, 
The word of God eventually, even despite our sin, is going to be made flesh and it is going to come into our mouths and into our hearts sacramentally in a very new way. And all we have to do is to carry it out. All we have to do is accept this profound gift that God has given us. And there is, I think, a foreshadowing of the Eucharist here, the word of the Lord coming into our mouths. I mean, they're thinking in in terms of language here because they've heard all of these instructions, but those instructions are going to take flesh later on. They're going to become a person, and that person is going to become food for us, that we can actually receive him in this profound way. And we have only to carry it out. Just act on what I've given you. And there's something very beautiful in this sort of instruction that Moses is giving that the people, they need to choose life or death. Are you going to follow God or are you going to follow yourselves? Are you going to follow the way of life or the way of death, blessing or curse? But then later on, he's going to make himself accessible to you in a way that you never dreamed of. And so the response to that is the responsorial psalm, which comes from Psalm 69. And Psalm 69 is interesting, and we don't get all of it here. We kind of pick it up in the middle of it. But Psalm 69 is a profound, a psalm about profound suffering, a psalm about profound suffering and profound affliction. And what we get in the response itself is the answer to that, which is turn to the Lord in your need and you will live. And Psalm 69 is a psalm that acknowledges that life is really hard and there is great suffering. I remember a good friend of mine, um, when he was first kind of coming to know Jesus and coming into his faith, read Psalm 69. He kind of opened his Bible randomly to it. And he was so moved because he realized that in this gift that we call scripture, someone actually felt the way that he felt. And this friend of mine was going through a very hard time in his life. And he randomly flipped open the Bible to the beginning of Psalm 69, which says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The floods are engulfing me. I'm worn out from calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason, they outnumber the hairs on my head. I have so many enemies without cause. They seek to destroy me. It goes on and on. But the answer is turn to the Lord in your need and you will live. And there's something about the simple realization that somebody feels the way that I've felt. It is looking forward in a certain sense to what Moses is predicting is going to happen to Israel. You're going to come into these hard times. God is going to build you up as a nation. You're going to go into this promised land and you're going to grow into a kingdom, but you're also going to fall into hard times. And there are going to be times like what Psalm 69 describes, where it feels like the waters have reached your neck. We all feel those things in our lives, right? When the waters are just too high, the floods are overtaking us. Everybody seems to hate us. Everybody Everybody's out to get us. They're kind of destroying us. But it goes on. You know my folly, O God. My guilt isn't hidden for you. I'm a mess, but you know that. But those who hope in you, they're not disgraced because of me. O Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I'm a stranger to all my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal, your house consumes me. It goes on, the insults of those who insult you follow me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn, put on sackcloth. People make sport of me. They sit at the gate. They mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But, it keeps coming back to the but, but I pray to you, O God, in these times of your favor and your great love, O God, answer me, rescue me, don't let me sink, deliver me, don't let the floodwaters engulf me. Things are bad, 
but I know that you can get me. And so it goes on. I pray to you, O God, for the time of your favor and your great kindness. Answer me with your constant help. It's looking forward to the inevitable day that Israel will fall. And Israel, of course, is not some abstract nation from the Old Testament. Israel is the people of God who is us. And I don't think it's a surprise to anybody that the church is once again in one of those times in history, and there's no shortage of them, where it feels for many of us in the church like the floodwaters are reaching our necks. Everything is a mess. Everybody seems to hate us. Everybody is confused by us. Even our leaders, a lot of our leaders are kind of falling by the wayside, and they seem like wolves trying to destroy us. What is going on? And the Lord says, just turn to me in need and you will live. I don't know what else to say about that except the fact that if you look around and you see the world and even the church and it feels like this inescapable mess, just know that it is nothing new. God has dealt with this before. The people of God have dealt with this before. They felt this way before. People have felt how we feel and worse. And God has always brought us up out of it because the church is the Lord's. The church is not merely ours. It's been put into the hands of human beings, but it is ultimately God's. So turn to the Lord in your need and you will live. And again, we go back to that line from Deuteronomy saying, choose this day. Who are you going to serve? Is it going to be life or death? That's actually Joshua when they finally do enter into the promised land. And Joshua's like, all right, let me remind you of what Moses said. Now is the time to choose. Who are you going to serve? Is it going to be life or death? Because you can't have it both ways. Which I think is an interesting segue into the book of Colossians, which is where we get our second reading. We don't get a whole lot of readings from the book of Colossians over the course of the year. But uh, Colossians, uh, we get it from the very beginning of the book. And a a quick little um, context on what's going on in the book of Colossians. All right, so Colossians, one of Paul's many letters. Uh, It's not a very long book, and it's actually, um, it's not terribly complicated, but one of the things that you see as you as you read all of Paul's letters is that as as Paul sort of writes to all these churches that he spent years establishing and preaching to and sort of building, um, he has this big problem that as you go on through Paul's life, he sort of has this realization oftentimes that he's maybe not going to make it back to some of these places, that he's probably going to be martyred pretty soon. He's getting pretty beat up himself. Um, and he has this constant anxiety for all these churches that he's established that after he leaves, all of these wolves in sheep's clothing are going to kind of come in and, and confuse the, the congregations and the flocks and bring disunity and a bunch of false teaching. And, and he's very concerned about this. And so he writes most of his letters basically trying to deal with those problems, saying, hey, the, the, you know, you, you heard what I said. You are a church because of, of what I've preached to you. And now you're believing all sorts of stuff that's not true. And so this is what's happening in the church in Colossae. And Colossae, is dealing with um, this false teaching, this particular school of false teaching that um, we might kind of anachronistically call it sort of what we might think of as new age spirituality, which is not really the right term, but um, maybe you've heard of the term Gnosticism. I'm sure we've talked about it on the podcast before. Uh, It's sort of a a proto-Gnosticism because Gnosticism is its true self, hasn't really appeared yet in the ancient world, but it's sort of a a, a pre-version of it. And um, Gnosticism, it, it, the Greek word comes from the, the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis. And basically the idea is there are some people, some teachers, claiming to be Christian, claiming to be leaders, walking around, basically saying, we have this secret gnosis, this knowledge that nobody else can have because we are spiritually attuned. We are tapped 
skin. We are we are enlightened, so to speak, right? Which was this was really common in early Judaism and in the pagan religions. In almost every early faith, you can find some sort form of Gnosticism, because basically it's a it's a fruit of human pride, right? We always want to think that we know better, and so. Um, this is a big problem, especially in the pagan world around Colossae. This mentality is very persuasive. And so there's these false teachers running around speaking to Paul's churches saying, hey, if you really want to be a mature Christian, if you really want to be sort of in and enlightened, you got to listen to us because we know stuff that you don't know. We have this secret hidden knowledge that you guys don't have. And so, again, this is a popular idea among the society at the time. Everybody wants to sort of feel like they're in the in group. And these false teachers are like, if you want to really know what's up, you got to follow us. You got to listen to us because then you'll be in. Then we'll enlighten you. And this is, this is always the case, right? We, this is just a human thing. We always want to know stuff that other people don't know. We, I mean, how many, how many ads have you seen on like the Discovery Channel or the National Geographic Channel for like the secrets of the Bible? Or like the secrets that the Vatican doesn't want you to know, right? We all are so persuaded. Uh, 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 we all fall into this trap of thinking that there's this secret knowledge that we have to tap into, and then we will know all of these secret things. Um, and one of the things that comes along with this sort of version of Gnosticism, and it goes part and parcel with it, and this was common in the ancient world, is this dichotomy that material things are evil and spiritual things are good, right? Matter is bad, spirit is good, which is a big problem because the Christian understanding has always been very, uh, very firm on the idea that human beings are a composite of matter and spirit. But there are some false teachers in the church in Colossae that are teaching the believers that their body is evil, that they need to sort of shed it or, or resist it. It's kind of like a prison or a shell, right? So that your spirit can come to true gnosis, right? There, there, there's versions, there's pieces of this in Hinduism and Buddhism to some degree, right? But these teachers in Colossae, they're probably advocating some types of self-denial, um, Paul's not very specific about it, but the, you know, food or, or couldn't touch certain things, which there's nothing wrong fundamentally with self-denial, right? It's a big part of Catholicism. We fast, you know, we give up things at certain times of year. That's a, that's a big deal. But the evil is behind why they're doing it. We give up things as Catholics, or we're supposed to give up things, you know, during Lent and other times because they're good things and we're sacrificing a good thing for the sake of a better thing. But these false teachers are saying, no, your body is evil. Material things are evil. And anything connected to your body is automatically evil. So to give in to your bodily desires is to obscure gnosis. Your spirit needs to get out of those things. So the spirit is good um, and humans are bad. And so you, you see this kind of tendency to worshiping angels in Colossians. All sorts of problems. Now, the way that Paul is going to counter this is by using good Christology. And this is what you see throughout the book of Colossians, and especially in the reading that we get today, which is this sort of deep understanding of who Jesus is. So many of the ancient heresies that plagued the early church, and still kind of plague the church today, is some variation of either Jesus was God, Jesus was God, Jesus is God, and he just appeared to be human. He wasn't really human because God can't really be human. That doesn't make any sense. Or he was just a human who was kind of really spiritual or sort of divinized, right? But neither of those are true. None of those sort of two sides of the same coin, none of them work. And again, what they're seeming to deal with in Colossae is this 
um, this idea that Jesus, if Jesus is God, then that means he's pure spirit, right? He didn't really have a body, which meant he didn't really suffer on the cross. It was just kind of an illusion, which is a heresy called docetism, which comes from the Greek word doseo, meaning appearance, saying Jesus just appeared to suffer. He couldn't have really did that, which is a heresy that was condemned, but it was really, really widespread. And this heresy came about partially because the evil one, the devil, hates flesh. He hates human bodies because he's pure spirit. And the son of God, who is his Lord and who is his master, has taken on a body of flesh. And so the church has always believed that Satan hates it. And he's always trying to get human beings to either condemn the flesh or utilize it as though it was a plaything or a tool, both of which distort our view of the body, right? And so what Paul's going to do is go head on after it. He's like, no, Jesus took on a body. Listen to what he says. Jesus Christ is the image, the icon. Image almost makes it sound like it's not real, but no, it's the word icon. He's the image. He's, he's how we see the invisible God. God we can't see, but Jesus we can. Why? Because he took on flesh. He's the firstborn of all creation. It's through him that all things were made, right? For in him all created things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him all thi- that in all things he himself might be preeminent. For in him the fullness was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things for him, making peace by the blood of his cross through him, whether those in he- on earth or those in heaven. Now, here's why Paul is dwelling on this, and he's going to go on throughout the rest of the letter. If you believe that Jesus only appeared to suffer— then Jesus doesn't really share our suffering with us. If you believe that Jesus is just pure spirit and he kind of had this illusion of a body that kind of appeared to suffer but didn't really, then God's just kind of putting on a show and he can't really speak to us that deeply, which is the antithesis of Christianity, which says, no, we suffer just like Moses said we were going to suffer in Deuteronomy, just like the psalmist recounts in his great feeling like the waters are overtaking him. That is a deep, true human emotion. And that is a human emotion that human beings have been dealing with in this profoundly lonely way for most of human existence until the day that God becomes incarnate and says, not only do I love you, but I'm going to take upon myself those very real human sufferings, those those foreshadowings, those predictions that Moses gave back in Deuteronomy of how Israel will fall and get beat up. I'm going to take on the curses myself. You know, when Moses says, choose this day, whether you want to be cursed or blessed, well, you're going to inevitably choose to be cursed because human beings make bad decisions sometimes. But then God becomes incarnate to take upon himself the curse, to let us know not just that he's there and he loves us, but he loves us so deeply that he's willing to walk with us, to bear that with us. Not as an illusion, not as some, you know, uh, nice thing that he says to us to kind of pat us on the back and comfort us, but to say, no, I, I really get it. I've taken this upon myself. And so what Jesus does for humanity is not simply take away our suffering. He teaches us how to deal with suffering in goodness and in love and in mercy, because we're all going to get beat up. We're all going to fall. We're all going to feel those feelings of loneliness and abandonment like everybody's out to get us. And Jesus says, yeah, I felt him too. And I didn't just feel them because I know all of human emotion because I'm God, but I felt them because I took it on myself. And if that's not true, Paul says, none of this really matters. 
If that's not real, then the whole thing is an illusion. But it's not an illusion because the one who created all things actually suffered with us in all things. And that's incredible because then it means that our suffering has meaning. It's not just empty. It's not just something to be tolerated and dealt with until it's over. It's something that can actually have meaning pulled out of it. Not because suffering is in and of itself good. It's not. Suffering is just suffering. But suffering united with Christ can actually give meaning to it. Which takes us into Luke, which is the story of a poor guy who falls into a great deal of suffering. And the, the, the trick of Luke is that Jesus is telling this parable about the Good Samaritan. And what nobody seems to realize as he's telling it is that we are that person who has fallen victim to the robbers. And so it says this, there was a scholar of the law who stood up to test Jesus. Everybody wants to poke and prod at Jesus. And he said, teacher, rabbi, rabboni, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, all right, well, what's written in the law? What's written literally in Deuteronomy? Have you read it or how do you read it? And he's like, no, I read it. And he recites it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus replied to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But because he was to justify himself, he said to Jesus, all right, who's my neighbor? And I wonder what it means when it said because he wished to justify himself. And I, I kind of think it means because he wanted to look better than Jesus. Jesus is the teacher, but this guy wants to be. He's like, you, who do you think you are? You're some itinerant guy. I'm not only going to test you, but I want to come out of this looking better than you. And so he's like, now I'm going to challenge you and I'm going to put you on the spot. So who is my neighbor? So you said, love your neighbor. We, we know that. We've all read the scriptures. We all read Deuteronomy. You're supposed to love our neighbor. Who is our neighbor? And this is a big debate. This has been a debate for a long time, especially now as we live in a world that is so siloed in its little tribes. Uh, that we kind of have, especially on social media and stuff, that I think this is a crucially important question for today. Who is my neighbor? Is it the one that believes politically differently than me? Who is my neighbor? Is it the one that voted for the person that I utterly hate in the last election, who we've kind of chosen to vilify? Is it my, my family member who has kind of disowned me because of my beliefs and these things that I practice? Is it that person on my college campus that thinks of me as a bigot because of my faith? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus, I'll tell you who your neighbor is. A man fell victim to robbers. As he went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, they stripped him and they beat him and he went off and they went off leaving him half dead and a priest. So, and again, I think what Jesus is trying to get at is kind of showing that we should be thinking less about the strict law code of Deuteronomy and more about precisely what Moses said in Deuteronomy which is that we have this choice between life and death, and we are going to blow it. And when we have blown it, how are we going to get back up? Who do we look to? God is going, he's desperate to save us. But how's he going to do that? And so this man fell victim to robbers. He was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. They stripped him, they beat him, they went off leaving him half dead. And then there was a priest. A priest happened to be going down that road. But when he saw him, he passed him on the opposite side. Why did he pass him on the opposite side? Well, he passed him on the opposite side because if you're a priest, according to the laws of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you're actually not allowed to touch a dead body or someone who is bleeding or someone who is, um, you know, losing life because the priest was supposed to be the one who sort of embodied life and they couldn't associate themselves with death. That was a big problem. And that's according to the law. 
So according to the law, this person is actually not to come into contact with this guy who was beat up. So he goes to the opposite side and he probably gave him a half look and pretended not to see him and went on. I don't know. And then a Levite. And Levites are the, of the priestly caste. They're, all Levites are not priests. All priests were Levites in Jesus' time, and not all Levites were priests. But the priests came out of the Levitical tribe, so they had a sort of preeminence as a tribe in Israel. He came to the place, and when he saw him, he passed to the opposite side as well. But then there was a Samaritan, a traveler. And even if you weren't a priest, right? I mean, it was, it was a big no-no, according to the Old Testament law, to come into contact with anything that was the diminution of life. With blood, you couldn't kill a fly with a fly swatter, right? It, it's coming in contact with death. And we are not to do that because the, the worship of Israel was to remind us that God is life and that we've fallen into death, but that's not what we're made for, which is a very good thing. But now we come into where the law sort of conflicts with the law. Because the law told us that we're not to come into contact with death or bleeding or diminution of life. But what happens when someone is die, dying and bleeding and diminuating life? Because the law also says that we are to show mercy. Remember, God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So what do you do when the law appears to butt up against itself? Because the law is meant to remind us that we're not made for death. But what do we do when we see somebody faced with death or faced with that kind of uh, beat up edness? <laughs> I just made up a word. Anyway, a Samaritan then came. And the Samaritans for the Jewish people were the hated people. They, they were the hated neighbors, right? Samaritans were basically the group of people that were left from the 10 tribes of Israel that rebelled during Israel's civil war back in the time kind of post-King Solomon. And after the exile had taken place, the Samaritans were basically who was left. So not only were they the Israelites who rebelled against Jerusalem and against the king of the Davidic line, but they also readily kind of intermarried with these pagan nations and, and abandoned God's covenant and the temple and worship and the priesthood and everything else. So they were kind of seen as these personas non grata, right? They were not good. And so the Samaritans and the Jewish people hated each other. Especially the Jews to the Samaritans, though, because they were the ones that abandoned. They were family members that had rejected the family. It wasn't just the noisy neighbors. It was the ones that used to be our brothers and our sisters. And now they've rejected us. Now we hate them. So one of those people came upon him. And he was moved with compassion at the sight. And he approached the victim. And he poured oil and wine over his wounds, and he bandaged them. Someone pointed out to me just the other day how utterly sacramental that actually is. He poured oil. He didn't just like bandage him up. He poured oil and wine over the wounds, two very valuable costs. So it's not just the, the Samaritan took the time to kind of see if this guy was okay and throw some bandages on him. He poured out expense and wealth and probably his livelihood on this poor guy. Oil, wine, things of great value and riches because it's almost as if the Samaritan is trying to pour out human dignity on this guy by the side of the road. And he lifted him up on his own animal. He wasn't afraid to touch him. Maybe he was. Maybe he was a little weirded out. There's a lot of blood probably. But he's, he overcame it. He's like, well, I'm going to do it anyway. He lifted him up. He put him on his own animal. He took him to an inn. He cared for him. And the next day, he took out two silver coins. He gave them to the innkeeper with the instruction to take care of him. If you spend any more than what I have given you, I'll come back and repay you. And Jesus says, okay, which of these, in your opinion, was neighbor to the robber's victim? And the guy who tried to trick Jesus, 
who everybody is staring at. I mean, make no mistake, everybody's watching him. He's like, oh, who's my neighbor? What are you going to say? Because if you say, you know, my, the Romans are my neighbors, we're going to attack you because the Romans are pagans and they're, you know, idolaters and they're doing all these terrible things and you must be too. Or if you say, you know, who knows what he was looking for, but he was trying to get Jesus in a trap. And Jesus describes a real life scenario because the idea of mercy is not abstraction. The idea of suffering is not abstraction. And everybody there could probably picture what it might feel like to be beat up and left by the side of the road and feeling like the waters have reached your neck, like everyone is out to get you, like the enemies have surrounded you, just like Psalm 69 said. And when you're in that spot, could it be that God will use the least likely of candidates to actually come to your aid and to pick you up and to pour out wealth and dignity on you? And what Jesus is doing, some have said that this is Jesus's most important parallel. I'm sorry, parable. Because what he's doing in this parable is redefining God's justice as God's mercy. He's redefining the preeminent characteristic of God from justice, which was sort of the understanding. And that's sort of what the law uh, seemed to imply. Now, the law never lied about the reality of God, but the, the Old Testament allowed us to see one particular aspect of God. But Jesus in his incarnation allows light to be shown even more on the other aspects of God which is namely, in this case, God's mercy, which fully existed in the Old Testament. It was fully present. Remember, there's that line from Samuel, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But, you know, we kind of read what we want to read. And part of the difficulty of the Old Testament is not just how difficult certain parts of the Old Testament are, but it's that oftentimes the writers of the Old Testament, the people who are involved in these things, are highlighting certain aspects of God over other aspects of God. And we do the same thing today, right? Sometimes our culture thinks of Jesus as just the nice hippie who just wants to put his arm around everybody. And we forget that Jesus was also the guy that kind of got ticked off and flipped over tables once in a while, that called people out from their sin, that called out hypocrisy, that called Peter to get behind him Satan at one point. He's not just the nice hippie who's always like, hey guys, I love everybody. I mean, he does, but you can see though how we readers historically have always tried to overemphasize certain aspects of God over other aspects. And this is Jesus saying, no, what you need to know about God is primarily his mercy. That is what he wants of you. And when the law appears to butt up against itself, God always desires mercy. His desire is also, is always mercy. And Jesus will remember, take on the identity. He doesn't just take it on. He is the high priest in flesh and blood. He is the God of the universe who takes on flesh and blood, who is the high priest and the high priest himself will bleed and will diminuate his life, will pour out himself utterly, will become like the man on the side of the road. I think it's easy to read through the story and miss the fact that on a very real level, Jesus is talking about what's going to happen to him. And the fact that he's not simply looking for a going through the motions. He's going to take all of this on. He will be beaten. He will be stripped. He will be taken by robbers in a very real way. And he will be nailed up on a cross. And a lot of people will pass by and look the other way. We don't even know where the apostles take off to. But they kind of look the other way. They go, so to speak, to the other side of the road. They all disappear. 
But it's interesting that, at least in the Gospel of Matthew, the first one to profess that this was really the son of the living God was a centurion, a pagan, an enemy, an outsider. So in a very real way, even including the sacramentality of this, when Jesus has wine touched to his lips, the the myrrh, right? The sour wine touched to his lips. All of this is really about him. And in a very real way, he's saying, when I take on all of the identity of Israel, including all of Israel's suffering that Moses pointed forward toward in Deuteronomy, that the psalmist recounts, how are you going to receive me? What are you, O great religious leaders who are trying to test me and poke me and prod me? How are you going to respond? Are you going to be the ones that pass over to the other side of the road and pretend not to see me? Or are you going to be the one that looks upon me with mercy? Because when you look upon me with mercy, you will see the face of the living God. So not only does Jesus enter with us in, his suf- in our suffering, but he takes it on himself and then he challenges us to say, what are you going to do when you see me suffering? You know what it's like to suffer. You know what it feels like to have the waters reach your neck. But when you see it happen to me, are you going to look the other way? Are you going to avoid eye contact? Are you going to pretend that you have someplace more important to be? Or are you going to be what God has asked the people of God to always be, which is the light of the world, which is to redefine mercy as, as redefine justice as mercy, to redefine, to actually live out the identity that God takes upon himself. All of which is pretty sacramental. And again, I'm just so struck by the oil and the wine in the gospel and then the being in the mouth in the first reading which is the sacramentality of who Jesus is. And to not understand Jesus' physicality and his entering into the suffering that we all share in is to miss the sacramentality of what God has done. He takes on us and our reality and our world, our messiness, and all of the rest of it. So lots more we could say about all of these readings. They're, they're, they're very rich. Um, those are some of my thoughts so thank you guys so much for listening even though it was just one of us this week uh we'll be back next week i think with both of us um please keep us in your prayers thanks for all your support um and we will be back soon thanks everybody god bless you the word on the hill podcast is a production of the aquinas institute for catholic thought here in beautiful boulder colorado you can find us online at www.thomascenter.org a-i-c-t And you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.